you can actually turn to Job chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 13 in a moment. We left off last week stating that, well, showing that suffering, and I just want to make this point again because it's very important, that God uses suffering. As a matter of fact, I, I put it in my notes because I just realized, I mean, we all realize this, but when you think of um, eternity, and we're going to talk about this in a moment here in the book of Revelation when God wrap thing, wraps things up. When you think of eternity, there really is no use for suffering and pain. It should not exist. As a matter of fact, it's an anomaly. God does not live in suffering and pain. But because he created this dispensation and he created free will, and we see, of course, Satan taking advantage of that and doing what he did, he's the first one to cause suffering and pain. And it's something that should not be avoided. It has a lot of value. We're going to see that even more here. But by the same token, not every time that you or I suffer is because we did something wrong. We see the, the, the story about the blind man in, in the, uh, who was born blind in the New Testament. They said, who sinned? Him or his parents? It's like automatically assumes it had to be sin. Well, maybe not necessarily. Job did not sin when he was made to suffer. But God reveals himself so powerfully in suffering. And everybody in here has suffered. And if you haven't, you will. You will. He reveals himself, I think, more powerfully in suffering than he does, in, in, um, even in, in just when things are going great. But the point is, is that it's that stark contrast that shows you. You, you know that old story that says, uh, uh, the, i got to paraphrase it, but you've heard it where um, this person's walking on the beach and God's walking with him, and then he starts to suffer, and he looks back and he only sees his own, his own footprints. And he says, God, where are you in my suffering? And he finally has to come to the realization that those footprints he saw aren't his. They're God's, as he was carrying him. Well, Job is in this situation, too. We also see, though, another... An, we, I think we see God's personality and his character a lot more clearly through suffering. So look for this. This has struck me more as I was thinking about this. First of all, your suffering may not be because you sin. Well, sometimes it is, and sometimes you and I deserve what we get. And you know what? If you and I keep living life in the wrong way and keep living in fear and keep living in fear and oh me, oh my, you know what? You are going to hurt yourself. There is no doubt about it. There is no doubt about it. And then you see, oh me, oh my, oh my, I never do anything right. Well, you know what? Get over yourself. But on the other hand, those who are suffering a lot of times didn't cause it. And a lot of times, it's not even for them. It's for somebody else in their life. So you look at suffering as something that's, number one, is transient. But when it does affect you, concentrate and keep your eyes on God. I mean, it's something that should go, quote, unquote, without saying, right? The other thing is that we were made to suffer. We were built to suffer. And in Job's instance, God, you can see, instigates the suffering but for great purpose all around. So that's, that's the standpoint from which we have to take a look at this. Actually, you can go back to, uh, well, you can go to chapter 1 and verse 9. God is still God, but he has allowed Satan to be the God of this world. Isn't that right? We talked about there is a legally binding arrangement here. And you remember, I used one example last week, and we see here how this legally binding arrangement that God will stick to, that he has to allow Satan to have rulership over this world within limitations, but there is a legally binding contract, and Satan knows it too. And that's why Satan can smugly say when God asks him at the beginning of the book of Job, 
you know, where, where have you been? And he goes, well, I've been walking around my real estate. I've been monitoring my stuff. If you roll forward to the New Testament, and Jesus, before he starts his public ministry, he has to be tempted by Satan. What does Satan actually do to tempt him? He gives him, gives Jesus the option of saying, all I have is yours if you will obey me and fall down and worship me. He could only do that because legally he owns this world right now, doesn't he? As a matter of fact, he owns parts of this universe because you know, we don't know exactly where his, where his jurisdiction stops right now. But we also know that he's on a tight leash. But he does have some leeway, doesn't he? And God does not interfere with that. We also see that there is still communication between God and Satan. It's not like God's ignoring him. And it's, they do communicate. We see that every once in a while in the book of Job that they do actually meet with God. We also see another example of this. Remember that um, there was a couple of examples when, when even um, uh, there was, when Moses died and there was a fight for the body of Moses. Even in that, there was a legality there that Satan was trying to, to go past his legality, but he at least even made the case that he should be able to have that body, the physical body of Moses, right? And there are other instances where, where even Michael the Archangel says to, about Satan, he says, you know what? It's not my place to rebuke you. That's between you and God. So there's a legal precedence here. And that legal precedence also influences our, well, quote-unquote, relationship. We don't have a relationship with Satan, but we have to deal with him because it is part and parcel. We live in his domain, and we are the pawns in this chess game. So we see all of this wrapped up into the, into the book of Job here, and that's, that's how I want to start it. So if we look at Job, um, chapter 1 and verse 9, we'll just review it. God is talking to Satan here, and he says, Have you considered my servant Job? And so Satan here says, um, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and, and, and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But you stretch your hand out and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse it to your face. Now you notice, he's not saying here, and this is a subtle difference, but I want you to see this. He says, allow me to stretch my hand and strike him. He didn't say it that way. He's challenging God. Go ahead, God. You do it. Because if you do it, it's going to be worse. Does God actually stretch his hand personally out to touch Job? He lets Satan do it, which is really what Satan wanted to do. So you see this in-your-face attitude. Believe me, you know, Satan has a lot of hubris still, even in the face of God whom he can behold and see. Even in the face and the reality of Scripture, which he knows better than we do, the audacity, because he knows he has a legal right to do this right now. But that's going to end. You know, it kept on, I kept on thinking about it. If you haven't been in first service this morning and you go to the second service, Pastor Joel is going to be talking about, and he was talking about this morning, the balancing of hard, of, of hard doctrine. You know, there are yeses and nos and black and whites and doctrine that must be adhered to. Not everybody has, you know, your truth, my truth. We can all have truth, right? But on the other hand, people can bat each other over the head with Scripture and it's like, go, go give your truth to somebody else. I don't need to hear it because all you're telling me is I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So there's this balance and this dance between love and, and, um, and, and solid, sound doctrine. I mean, you see how Jesus treated the Pharisees, right? As a, and also how he loved others as well. So there's this dance, and this dance still exists between God and Satan. And even though there, there's no love lost there, but there is this thing, and he allows us to be influenced by Satan. 
And did Job? Did God stop loving Job? He did not. Did did he stop? Did he ever stop loving his family? He did not. But he allowed these things to happen. So, in uh, in verse twelve, the Lord said to Satan, "Very well, then everything he has in it is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger." He's given him a little bit of of leeway with him, but not uh, not too much. Okay. You know, I want you to look at it as we move forward here as almost, well, I want to say it is. If you look, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to look into this right now in, in a moment here as we go. I want you to look at it because this is the way I'm starting to really see it more and more as a gift, a gift to be allowed to suffer. I mean, look at the suffering that Jesus had to go through. And it was a gift. His suffering was a gift for us. Your suffering may be a gift to God. Job's suffering was a gift to God. You think about it. He never charged God in all of the things that happened to him. We're going to see a lot of, a lot of this here. And also, we're going to see that it's because we were built for pain and suffering that God always puts it to good use. And, and I'll tell you the truth. I've, I've said this to you, and you've seen it in your own lives. I think sometimes, unfortunately, I have to learn better lessons, or, or I learn lessons better. I, I, I infuse them into my being more when I have to suffer through something than when I'm given something. Now, that doesn't exclude learning from blessings, right? But think, you know, sometimes it's a more poignant lesson to learn by suffering or the suffering of somebody else that you love. Or someone might learn something from your suffering because your suffering may have nothing to do with you and God's plan at that point in time. I want to read you um, in Revelation chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read this in a second. But suffering, to put an even, even sharper edge on the question, we also know that God himself, that pain and suffering is not the normal state. And this is what I'm going to read to you from here. In his realm, what we call heaven or eternity, I mean, however you want to slice it, where God is and where we are destined to go, hallelujah, these are attributes that will not be there. Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 21 and, and verse 5. This is an account of the end of the story. The end of the story as this age wraps to a close. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the sky fled away from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now that's the administration of fairness. Have you ever asked a Christian... Do you want God to be fair to you? Do you think God's a fair God? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Think twice before you answer yes. You don't want fair. You don't. <laughs> Did Jesus want fair? Did Jesus demand his rights? Did Jesus demand what was coming to him? No. But this is the, this is the great white throne judgment. This is the very end. This is when everybody who has rejected God, rejected Jesus Christ, this is after the millennium. This is when... It's all said and done, and it's about to be handed back up to eternity. All history is complete at this point. The last judgment is the administration of fairness, because those who do not want Jesus, those who do not want grace, I'll do it myself. Well, they're going to get what they deserve. They're going to get what they wanted. It's very fair. The dead were judged according to what they had done. No, that's fair. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person, here's this administration of fairness again, was judged according to what he had done. You notice, this has nothing to do with us, amen? amen. 
Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Listen to it now. Death is also discarded. Death is also dealt what's fair. The misery and suffering, which is in the end, is death. That, that's the final, final outcome, right? Which is the antithesis of eternity. So even death is thrown away at this point. Fairness is complete. All judging is done. Death is thrown to the lake of fire. And it says the lake of fire is the second or the final death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Remember we talked about entropy ad nauseum in this class? And if God created everything and he said it is good, I look around and I say, you know what? It may be pretty. But in the long run, the more you understand about the universe and about science and about how everything is degrading and we're all dying as well physically, how really good is that? How can you say to anybody, just one human to another, looking around and saying, yes, well, God created everything, but he said it was good. Because of sin, it's all dying, right? So here is where he's saying it all passes away. There's something brand new coming. The laws of physics are changing to what they were when God created everything and when they were good. So what we're used to is going to change. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling... This tears me up because I realize when I look at what Job went through and what we go through, and this is the wrap-up of history, we can bank on this. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and not just in that temple. This is in us and for eternity everywhere, everywhere. There'll be no place where, where God will not dwell, except one place, and that is hell, which is not populated yet, but it will be right at this time. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. Now listen to this, verse 4 in chapter 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And just as importantly... There will be no more, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So I think that pretty well proves that this, these things are an anomaly. That they are not the way it should be, but we're so used to it. The dying universe, the death, pain, and suffering that we live in. And Job was part and parcel of it all. But it's all, only all, for good reason. And when all the purpose for pain and suffering and entropy and de deprecation and all this, when it, the purpose is served, it's going to go away. That's our future. That's the message we have, and only through Jesus Christ. And then right after he says that in verse 5 of chapter 21 of Revelation, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And I can also read you, just, just read this for you, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for everybody. No. We just saw what happens in the great white throne judgment, right? No. But it's for those who love him. Right? And we also can dovetail that with what we've said many times, and you know the scripture. All things work for good. All things work for good. For those who love God and 
are called according to his purpose, whatever purpose that might be. So let's talk about Job and see what God's purpose is in all of that and what you and I can glean out of this. The greater and deeper provision, as we will see, is by far the gifts of being made in God's image and being brought into a relationship with Him and then being given wonderful knowledge about Him and being allowed the rare opportunity, which we're going to see even more of here, to see how His heart, mind, and character work and especially what His point of view is in everything. Finally, we are afforded the greatest of all honors, the greatest of all honors, to be given eternal life and then to continue to learn from Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit in their presence with minds that you and I will have, which, which we can't even know what we'll be able to think and our wisdom and, and our perception, our modes of perception. I mean, we have five senses now and hardly use those. We use, what, 10% of our brains? Can you imagine what eternal life is going to be in these glorified bodies and still learning more and more for eternity with enhanced capability to do so. I mean, this is where we're headed in God's presence forever. No wonder Satan hates God's plan. I'd hate it too if I were him because he has no more hope. He hates human beings and wants to show God that God is the foolish one for creating garbage like these flesh machines with these three pounds of gray matter and that God has the in Satan's point of view, the audacity to create something as beautiful as Satan himself, what he was anyway, the pinnacle of God's creation. And you look at this and you say, God's telling Satan, this is going to be better than you by far. And he's going to judge your kind. Uh, no wonder Satan's a little angry. Of course, we know that who really the fool is. Satan is brilliant. He's a brilliant fool. He's a, ever know anybody like that? You ever talk to a professor at a college who's a brilliant fool? Well, put that on steroids. And Satan is crazy too. You know what the definition of crazy is, right? That's right. He does, he does not change his MO. He does not change his tack. He is, it's so easy for us, anyway, to see through his spiritual, I mean, his, his spiritual, his... Um, his uh, machinations, that it's all the same, but people don't understand it because of this facade of difference, like he'll, he'll appear as an angel of light to accomplish his work. He'll have this false trinity he's trying to build. He's trying to do what God does, right? And then he appears, we talked about this, as aliens, as UFOs, as, as this and that, well, everything. Gods, goddesses, myths, mythology. It's all a presentation layer for the same garbage and the same M.O. behind it. It's just a presentation layer. That's all it is. It's just a facade. But it's effective. It works very well for limited human beings who don't have the Holy Spirit. So, his strategy is bankrupt. But let's see, let's see now how all of this works together between God, between Satan, and now between Job and his three friends plus this fourth young man called Elihu. Let's see how it all works. And then what we're going to do next week is we're going to now, after we, we set the stage here, we are going to see after all of the machinations between all of these characters in this little play here, when God himself says to Job, all right, Job, let's get this settled here. Gird your loins, my friend. Get yourself ready because you are going to stand like a man. I'm going to ask you some questions and you are going to make an account of yourself. We're setting the stage here really to understand more about God from this point of personal relationship and his personal intent. 
And like I said, the reason why I keep saying this is because you know in this class, especially now we've had to teach the books of the law and we had to teach the history. We learn certain points of view about how God operates and, and how things work because of those situations. But now we've turned to the books of poetry, which really we shift gears on, on God's personality and, and how he applies himself in this relationship with us and others because we've shifted from history. We've shifted from the move, counter move, and prophecy. We'll get back there. We got a lot more of that coming, right? But now we're shifting gears into, into a different mode of seeing God. And that's what I want you to get out of this. Okay. Job chapter 1 and verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older, oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. It was a normal day. And then the Sabians attacked and carried them off. Oh, I guess that day had an abrupt end to it. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped. Imagine that. Satan was allowed to be so efficient in this first round of attacks that only one was allowed to escape, and that so that he could be the messenger of bad news. So don't be surprised if when, when God has scheduled some suffering for you or for me that you may get the news by someone who was made to escape that suffering or that incident just so that they could be the ones to let you know it's your time. Something's wrong. Like that phone call. We got into a car accident. I'm sorry, but your, your, your son is really in bad shape and I'm a friend of his and I was in the car and thankfully I didn't get hurt too badly. Well, maybe he didn't get hurt too badly so he could be the one to call you to bring you the bad news. I mean, I'm just, just look at it this way. You don't know, right? Job doesn't know. But we are, we're given a, a modus operandi here of how God allows things to work and how Satan can use situations. You know, God, I think, you, you see, because I know I see it, most of the time he will speak to us through other people. Most of the time he will manipulate situations to get us to understand or do or not do or see something. Isn't that correct? Well, Satan can do the same thing if he's allowed to. Matter of fact, this is exactly what's happening here. So always have your eyes open. Always have your eyes open. Because, you know, as you and I go about our normal day, there are ones watching us on the good side of the equation and the bad side of the equation. And you realize that they are watching us more closely than you and I can watch ourselves, if you will, almost, or that we can watch others because of the way we're locked into four dimensions. Remember, I've explained this to you, right? With Mr. and Mrs. Flat, and I'm not going to go through all of that again, but if you have somebody that's locked in two dimensions that has no capability to understand height, I, don't, I can't understand height that well either, <laughs> but I'm talking about like no height at all when it doesn't exist. If that were the case, and this is Mr. Flat, and there's no height, can I, in three dimensions or four dimensions, get close enough to him where I'm at a breath away and he won't even know I'm there? That's the way it is with spirit beings around us. That's why God can be with us and even in us. And Satan can be around us and the demons are around us and all of these interlopers who can come in and out of our four-dimensional time space can be watching you every step of the way. And that's how he knows how to set you up. and Because he's watching your expressions. He's right in front of my nose. Not maybe Satan. He's probably got bigger fish to fry than me. But just as you have guardian angels on the good side, believe me, Satan's dispatched some evilness around you and I to watch us. But we've got personages assigned to us. And as you go about life and something doesn't happen right or you have a smirk on your face or you're happy about some evil or something, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, they're watching. And that's how he knows how to build a good temptation for your eye 
You know, if you're on that computer, men or even women, and you're looking at things you shouldn't be doing, you know God's watching too, watching you, but Satan's watching you too. And he'll be reported back to, hey, you know, Mike, he, uh, he's getting a little, uh, he's letting himself slip there. Make sure you help him. You're always being watched. You're always being watched. See, it's not just the government watching you anymore. So listen to this. So let's, so let's go back here, right? So he says here uh, in chapter 16, and I am the only one to escape the tail. You know, while, now listen to this, while this one servant who escaped this, this horrendous problem, this horrendous thing that happened to Joe's family, while he was speaking in verse 17, I want you to get this. This is like bam, bam, bam. Another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans have formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while this second one was speaking, the third messenger comes and says, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are all dead. Wow, can you imagine? Have you ever had anything happen like that? Wow, and I am the only one to escape. You know, it's like, you know, you guys keep escaping. <laughs> Send three people to escape to tell me one right after the other. And the timing was perfect here. Now in verse 20, on the heels of all of this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. You talk about deep, deep, deep pain. And then he fell to the ground and spit in God's face. No, in worship, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be cursed. Now, if you were Satan, this ain't right. But he's showing us the right attitude. You came in with nothing, and you can leave with nothing. Everything you have in the middle isn't worth anything. Now, I'm not, I don't want to downplay it if, you know, if, you, if God has given you blessings and you can bless others with it or if you have a home you need to take care of and a family, do not shirk your responsibilities because if you do, what does God say about a, 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 someone who doesn't provide for their family? What does he say about it? Anybody know? Worse than an unbeliever. You better take it to heart. So it's not that these things are not worthwhile. They're worth nothing. But in the grand scheme of things, you're on borrowed time here. You came in with nothing, and the things you have are for your training ground and my training ground. Or if you're not a Christian, that's your reward. You came in with nothing, you're going to leave with worse, actually, if you're not a Christian. But if you came with nothing, you're going to leave with everything. Because what does God say? Whatever you, if you, He who seeks to find his life shall lose it, but he who gives up his life shall gain it. Right? Job knew all of this. Looks like the first plan of Satan's backfired just a tad here. So guess what? We're going to have another meeting. Job chapter 2 and verse 1. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Okay, Satan, where have you been? Same question. And Satan answers in the same way. And he says, Hey, Satan, uh, by the way, how about my servant Job? <laughs> There is no one like on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and still, main, still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. But remember, who instigated this whole dialogue in the first place as it's presented in Scripture? God. So you see, there's a give and take here thing. Remember, 
This whole thing is only for God's glory. It's only for God's glory. And God's love for, for Job and, uh, is going to shine through. And he's going to use this for Job's good in the end. But don't forget, it's all for God's glory. And this is what he's showing right here. In verse 4, the Satan goes, Ah, yeah, sure, but skin for skin. It's like, Satan, you didn't think about this the first time? Except that God said, don't touch him. See, God's playing this out. This is a chess game. Move, counter move, right? I prefer to say that God has the white pieces and Satan has the black pieces. But it is a chess game. And a chess game, the rules of engagement are ones that will not be broken. And by the way, isn't a chess game bound in this thing called time? You have a certain amount of time when you know while you're deciding your move, your opponent's watching you. And once that clock is hit, when the opponent makes their move, okay, you've seen, you've seen the calculations, and now you've been formulating your counter move, and when the clock is hit and it's your time, you now can start formulating your plan. I showed you how Satan did this. When he, as soon as he figured out that God was going to give a certain amount of time for the children of Israel to leave Egypt and, and get into that promised land, he had a couple of hundred years to do something, and all of a sudden, what, what, what was that land waiting for the children of Israel? Giants. There was no problem with that land except for a set of giants. And that was the first thing that the, that the children of Israel encountered when they were getting close to it. So there's this move and counter move, move and counter move, and God allows Satan to do certain things. So there's this, there's this watching each other. They're watching each other. Okay? So this is what's going on here. So now there's the, the move and the counter move. So the Lord says to Satan in verse 6, All right, very well, then he is in your hands, but do not kill him. You think Satan's going to ask for that next? Sure, he didn't curse you, but if you kill him, well, wait a minute, if you kill him, he can't curse you, he'll be with you. Yeah. I guess that's the end of the game. Checkmate. So Satan went off in the presence of the Lord and afflicted, uh, afflicted Job with the boils, and you know the rest. And then in verse 9, is Job's wife says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Now, this is like the, the, the icing on this old cake here, the cherry on top here. Curse God and die. Now, I can understand her exasperation, but be careful when you give somebody advice. Be careful. Because it may be coming out of the sourness or the pain of your own heart. And if so, you're giving advice to someone you love, and a lot of times it's easier to give someone the hard advice when you love them than to give a friend hard advice, isn't it? Sometimes the advice can be a bat over the head, and I'm, this is exactly what this sounds like to me. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Can so it, a Sure. Right. And when she said that, I mean, it sounds really harsh, but she may have been like, oh, Joe, we just let it go. I mean, Chuck Swindoll gave that different perspective. He, over the years, he's, he's learned not to be so harsh with her because <coughs> what she had already gone through. That's a good point. That's a good point. Right. It's a good point. It amplifies the, the whole thing is that if you look at her, she is basically saying, I can't handle this. Where Job is saying, I'm having a hard time handling this too, but he's keeping his integrity. Is she starting to lose hers? We don't know the answer to that because she's, the dialogue does not continue on with her. And I agree with you there. She's suffering. And that was, that's part of the whole thing. In your suffering along with someone you're close to, because you're, if you're going to suffer, if a friend's suffering, it's not, let's face it, it's not as hard on you as when someone you're, you're, you love or some a relative is suffering, especially, again, in this instance, they had children together. So, 
So what does Job's reply to her? He says, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he had said. So she should have maybe taken some advice too. But, you know, we don't know what happened to her. We just don't know. But I agree. So Job, he's losing his wealth and his possessions, his family, his personal health, and not even his wife are giving him, is giving him any slack at all. And again, as Rachel said, we can, we can understand that. But the focus here is on Job. So I'd imagine that all of this was embarrassing to Satan because still, Job praised God and he did not lose his integrity. So what have we learned so far? A great deal about an aspect of reality that Job was not privy to, right? And this may be the case for you and I when we go through suffering. Remember that. There's a lot of things that you and I are not privy to. So let's see. One, we learn that Satan is still accountable to God and there is no variance from that and even still meets with him at appointed times and cannot do anything without his permission. Two, Satan's thoughts are an open book to God. So God has an advantage in this chess match, doesn't he? Three, Satan is not omnipotent nor omnipresent and can't do anything to any of us without God's will being behind it. And if God's will is behind it, then you have nothing to fear. Oh, it's okay to suffer. It's okay to be in pain. It's also okay to, be, to enjoy. It's also okay, okay to enjoy prosperity and goodness from God's hand as well. Like Job said, should we accept one and not the other? Because we don't know everything in God's, in God's mind. We don't know what he's doing. Four, God's eyes are always on those who are his. That's very simple. Five, even your deepest sufferings are not necessarily punishment or even merely cause and effect, although these conditions can apply. I say a lot of times when it is punishment, you've probably been warned like a few times. I know it happens to me. I get spanked by God and, and I can't say I wasn't warned. I know, I mean, you know. But if you trip and fall down and break a tooth or something like that, God didn't warn me that there was this crack there or that Doug stuck his foot out to trip me. You know, it's all my wife. And she'll say, curse Doug and die. <laughs> So the key here is always check for yourself as best you can. Remember, like I said, live life with eyes wide open. Not mind wide open, but eyes wide open. If you keep on looking at yourself and the woes, I mean, we're all set to do that, especially during suffering, whether we brought it on ourselves or not. Oh, it's me. I got to keep on looking inside. Oh, poor Mike. Poor Mike. Uh, poor Mike. Poor Mike. You know, no one treats me right. No one treats me. Uh, God didn't give me enough. Or, or I lost everything. Or I'm, I can't get a job. That's not keeping your eyes out. That's not keeping your eyes up. So you're going to be in worse position than Job was. Right? So always check how you live, what you're doing, or what you're not doing. Are you sinning or not? And, and I'm saying, you, you may not have a 100% beat on any of this. No one can. But always keep watching. Always keep watching. Also, be aware that time and circumstances themselves are prominent in the experience of suffering. Are you at the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time? Well, only God knows that. But you're going to be someplace sometime, and everywhere you go, there you are. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say, but you try to figure that one out. Number six. It is never beyond the realm of possibilities that during one of these meetings, God said to Satan, have you considered my servant? Put your name here. Never forget that. Never forget that. 
So now the bulk of the rest of the book of Job consists of dialogue. And boy, there's a lot of it. If you ever tried to read the book of Job, guess what? We're not going to do that. So this is an overview, thankfully. Cause, but you should because it is very poetic. It is very heart-wrenching. And there's a lot. If you can read, and I have a hard time doing it, but if you can read and, and sit and read that, you can really get to know Job and get to know his heart and get to know his feelings. And if you're into that stuff, more power to you. So it's Jobin and his three friends trying to help him and, and, and commiserating and, and so forth. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So let's look at now. We have a, we have what, a, do we have to stop like right now? We got like a minute left? All right. Let's just do a quick summary of his friends and we'll pick up next week. Eliphaz. His arguments sounded good, but he had based them on his own observations and experience, saying that Job must be suffering as a result of sin in his life. Not a good case because we are told that Job is an upright man and an upstanding man. So that was Eliphaz's advice to Job. Some of his, you know, some of his advice ain't so, ain't so great here. Bildad, he argued from the viewpoint of tradition. He was really trying to advise Job that Job himself was a hypocrite. Hmm. Zophar, pressed more of the orthodoxy into service as a way of also telling Job that he must have had a hand in his own predicament because of the way he must have lived his life. That's the batting over the head without the love piece, isn't it? <laughs> and then there's another man here, a young man, younger than the others, named Elihu, who appears on the scene about three quarters of the way through the story. So there's a long diatribe between these guys and Job and amongst themselves. Then Elihu comes on the scene, and he takes a position against the cases laid out by Job and his three companions. He actually looks upon it differently. So we're going to talk more about that, unfortunately, we have to wait until next week. I want a Bible study hour. That's right. At the end of the book, God says, I'll, uh, you pray for your three friends. That's right. No, that's right. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? He saw them in appendage because everybody looks right. They, 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 they really concentrate on the three friends, but they forget about this young, and he's younger. Isn't that interesting? How, it also, we know in the New Testament, when advice is given to pastors and, and those who are in, responsible for the flock. And God says, don't let any of them despise you because of your youth. This dichotomy, this mustard seed thing, this, this twist that God gives everything that only He can work out. And that's why beings like Satan and even us look at it and say, God, how can you take a young man who's younger than me and have more wisdom than me? So there's a lot more to it. Uh, Exactly, exactly. That's a very good point. And an extension to that point exactly is, uh, depends on which side of the suffering you're on, right? If you're the Job in the instance, you've got to watch your friends and what they say. But if he's the Job, well, no, because you'd be his wife telling him to just go curse God and die. So that wouldn't be it. <laughs> That's probably not a good one. He'll stick his foot out. <laughs> So let's say if, uh, let's say Becky was the friend. I mean, Becky was the one suffering. And you were the friend out of maybe others that might be around her. Which one of them would you be? That's a very good point. So no matter what side of the suffering equation you're on, you've got to keep your eyes open. Watch yourself and watch others around you. Because you never know when you'll slip into being one of these 
or Job's wife or whomever and, and not realize that your own attitude is muddying the waters and God may have to say, you know what, I'm going to have her pray for you because I don't like what you said to her about her predicament. <laughs> Just as an example. Anyway, everybody have a wonderful week. Uh, I will see you next week. Remember, there is no class on the 23rd.